This is The Juggernaut Interviews, and I'm Snigba Soor. In this series, I'll be talking to South Asian founders who have gone out and raised funding across the world at different stages of their journey. There are plenty of podcasts out there about entrepreneurs. What makes this one any different? Well, most mainstream narratives center founders after they've already made it big. We're told to believe that founders with technical skills or insanely aggressive tactics are the only ones who succeed. And I think that's a disservice and a myth. A myth that prevents people with diverse talents from playing in the arena. So what you'll hear on this podcast is stories from founders that don't fit those existing patterns. Founders smack dab in the middle of building. It's not that easy to explain exactly why someone was successful just by looking backwards. So we dig deeper into their challenges and how they solve them. Think how I'm building this versus how I built this. I'm a founder who's raised venture capital myself, so you can trust me to ask smart questions. I'm here not just to learn, but also to explain how our guests make the tough calls. I started The Juggernaut, a media company that tells South Asian stories because I was tired of reading the occasional news story about us. I want there to be more and not just about the usual suspects. On the first episode of this podcast, I'm talking to Prerna Gupta, founder and CEO of Hooked. The Stanford graduate and serial entrepreneur has been building companies for over 17 years. During her time as a founder, she's seen a heck of a lot, both in terms of what has changed in the Valley and what hasn't as much. She shares her thoughts on everything from fundraising and being held to higher standards by VCs, some of whom would only talk to her male co-founder while she was in the same room, to how to find your target audience, to how she was working from home way before it was cool. Her latest company, Hooked, has raised millions of dollars to reimagine how teenagers read fiction on their phones. She's also an artist and bookworm. Spoiler alert, we get to hear her sing. I'm Snigda, and this is my conversation with Berna. First of all, I love strong women founders. And second of all, you are so experienced and have done so much. So I'm so excited to dig in. Awesome. Sounds great. So the first thing I'm going to start with is you are the founder and CEO of this amazing media company called Hooked. You have gone on the record and said that you were traveling around the world writing a novel when you first had the idea. So tell us more about this product and tell us more about how you thought of it. The idea came about, I think it was in 2014 when I was traveling with my husband. I co-found all of my companies with my husband, Parag, and we have been making mobile apps together since the very early days of the app store. And our previous company was in the music space. We made music creation apps and we sold that company to one of our competitors. And after a couple of years there, we started to kind of get the itch again and uh, decided to to leave that company. And you know, we are, both my husband and I are technologists, but we're also artists. We're both musicians. We've both been writing our whole lives. I'm a dancer. And we felt like after years of grinding it out as founders, that creative energy was slowly dying. And so we wanted to tap back into it. So we left Silicon Valley, left everything behind and decided to just pack up, you know, a bag and go travel. We started in Costa Rica and ended up traveling all over the world for a year and a half. And while we were traveling, we started to write a novel for young adults. It's a sci-fi fantasy trilogy set in Silicon Valley in the future. And as we were writing, we started to just think more about the business of storytelling. And a lot of this really came from our desire to create something 
successful. You know, we were spending our time writing this and we had big dreams. We wanted to reach massive audiences with this story like we had with our music apps. And we started to just ask ourselves, how do you do that today, especially as unknown creators? You know, starting from the beginning, we didn't have any connections in Hollywood or in the book publishing industry. And also there was something unusual about this book that we were writing, which is the protagonist was an Indian female. What we were hearing was that there wasn't a market for sci-fi fantasy trilogies with an Indian female protagonist. And this was really surprising to us because I'm a huge sci-fi fantasy fan and I would love to read a story or see a movie, you know, in that genre with a protagonist that just looks different and looks a little bit more like me. And what kind of struck us was the way that green light decisions are made in the industry. It's a bunch of generally older executives who are deciding based on their personal taste and based on what has succeeded in the past, which things to invest in. As long as that structure remains, diversity is going to be slow. And so we felt like maybe there was something we could do using our experience as app developers to build a new kind of storytelling platform where we go direct to consumer and we empower diverse creators to tell the stories of their lives and reach audiences directly. And we use the best of technology and algorithms to connect these unique stories with people who are really thirsty for something different. And so that was really the the impetus for Hooked and the reason personally why we, st- why we started it. We also saw a really big opportunity to rethink how stories are told on the mobile phone. We are spending all of our time now on mobile phones and the user experience is really different from a traditional book or going into a theater to watch a movie. And so we felt like there was an opportunity to just kind of reinvent the story in a new format that made sense on such a small device and on the go. I love that story. And I see so many parallels to what I felt when I started the juggernaut in terms of falling on deaf ears. And there's so many threads you've hit on that I want to pull on. So one of the things I wanted to hone in on is the fact that you are a serial entrepreneur. You know, 2020 saw, I believe, fundraising for female founded companies drop It's actually very low. It's anywhere from 2.6% from certain records, 2.9%. And then when you look at female founders of color, it drops to like 0.006%, which is also atrocious. So I'd love to see, hear your stories. Like tell us how fundraising has changed when you start on your journey to today. Has it changed? Has it not changed? Yeah. Okay. I have so much to say on on this topic. So (laughs) I have been doing startups for 17 years, basically my entire career. Fundraising has been so difficult for me the entire time, although it has gotten easier over time. So when I started in 2005, when I did my first startup, it was, I mean, the stats are bad now. They were like, it was non-existent. You know, female founders, there were hardly any at all. It was so difficult to walk into a VC meeting because they were all men. (laughs) It was all white men. And it, it was just so apparent that it was uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable for them that this short, dark-skinned woman, young woman at the time, you know, was trying to pitch something to them. It just, it didn't click. And 
VCs pride themselves on being great pattern recognizers. And the issue with that is like in their mind, they're like, okay, the pattern I'm recognizing is a successful CEO looks like this, sounds like this, dresses like this. And I did not match any of those patterns at all. And so it was such an uphill battle to raise funding for my first startup. We were always just scrounging, you know, through friends and family. And little by little, um, we ended up eventually raising a quarter million dollars for my first startup over the course of like four years. In today's world, that's like, that's not even a fundraise, you know, but it was at the time meaningful enough for us to like get off the ground, build a site, get some users. We eventually, so that first startup was a social networking site for Indians. We started it in 2005, soon after Facebook raised a $12 million series A, we felt like this was something that was going to be big all over the world. And so we wanted to start something similar in India. And we at some point had 2 million users on the site and like things were kind of taking off, but we could just never honestly raise enough money to move quickly enough. And obviously Facebook ate our lunch and became the, you know, Facebook of India. And so that company actually failed, but I learned so much during that experience about how to be a founder, how to build products, and about fundraising. And when you are different, when you, when you don't fit the pattern, it's that much harder. The bar is so much higher in terms of how skilled you have to be to actually go fundraise. But through that four-year experience, I did slowly pick up those skills. And a few months after my first startup failed, created the second one, which was the music apps company that was in 2009, soon after the app store launched and things got a lot easier. We were able to raise that first quarter million within a few months, (laughs) you know, it was still hard, but I could see it getting progressively easier. And then now fast forward to my third company, um, we've been lucky to raise money when we needed it without it being too hard, although it's still been hard. (laughs) And I'm not going to lie and say it's not, you know, you see, you read all these announcements of people raising these crazy rounds with no traction, no metrics. A lot of them crash and burn after raising a billion dollars. And that's not possible for me. I need metrics. You know, it's like, no one's going to give me money just because they like me. I have to overperform every, at every single stage to go raise that round, but I'm aware of that. And I think it ultimately makes me a better founder. Um, the ways in which things have, have not changed, I think are just people's inherent biases. So for example, I co-found all my companies with my husband, Prague. We go into the pitch meetings together. I've had so many instances where I'm up there giving the pitch. I'm the one talking 90% of the time. And then, you know, a VC turns around to ask a question and they look at Prague, my husband, to ask the question. They don't look me in the eye to ask the question. They ask him and expect him to answer I don't think they're doing it on purpose. They're not trying to be bad people. It's just, to me, it just shows the level of discomfort that they have viewing me as an equal or as a, as a powerful CEO. They just can't see me that way. I feel like I'm speaking to myself. (laughs) (laughs) Verna, I felt like I was just talking to myself when you said that, because we both come from pretty good schools. And so sometimes what I hear from some of my advisors or my friends they're like, well, if they're not investing in a person like you, who are they investing in? They're very confused. And 
I've always had to have metrics, what I call at the next level. When I'm raising my seed, I'm held to the standard of a series A. When I'm raising a series A, I'm held to the standard of a series B. And sometimes my own plan is used against me. So if I'm like, I'm raising a series seed to go international, then they're like, well, let's wait until you go international. And I'm like, well, did you not just hear my presentation? I'm raising money to go international. So that means you're not, you're not going to be part of this round or ever because you're, you're not understanding the words coming out of my mouth. So when you said specifically that you've gotten more skilled over time, are there specific tactics, specific things that you do that, that have allowed you to get more skilled? The number one skill is storytelling. You don't, you're not just trying to sell them on facts. The facts bolster your vision and your story. What you're really trying to do is engage them with a story, make them believe. Ultimately, a startup for many, many years in the beginning is, is just a fantasy, you are creating a, a, a fantasy of a world that you want to exist in the future and that you have a special solution for or a special thing that you're creating to make that vision a reality. And I think in the beginning, you know, it just doesn't come naturally in the beginning. I mean, it does for some people, but mostly it's just like, okay, here are my rational thoughts. Here are the facts. <laughs> this is why you should invest in me. And over time, I've gotten a lot better about understanding that you should tell a narrative. And so, for example, I always like to start my pitch with a personal narrative. This is who I am. This is what I was doing when I came up with this idea. And that's why I know that there's an opportunity for this. And I find that that kind of narrative immediately engages people. And it also is a good filter. I mean, it was just that example that you were giving of this is my plan and, and you know, someone then turns around and uses it, uses it against me. It's like, okay, you're not going to be my investor. I don't want you as my investor because we can't communicate. <laughs> and if you're telling a story, you're going to have some percentage of investors who really resonate with that story. And you want those people. The other thing that I have learned is that demos, having a killer demo is really, really effective. With my second startup, the Music Apps startup, I would go in and I would demo our product. We built like a very basic prototype. The app was called La Da. It was reverse karaoke. You sing into the phone and it'll compose music to match whatever you sing. And I'm an amateur singer. And so I started the pitch with, you know, I got up there, I pulled out the phone and I sang a little song. And this sort of also turned the whole thing on its head. Like, here's this, like, who is this short, dark skinned girl with a soft voice trying to pitch up? all right, I'm going to get up here and perform and show you who I am and make an impression and also show off my product and demo it. And you can see there's that wow factor in that demo with Hooked. It's, you know, our app, it's a chat fiction app. And so we would actually tell our personal narrative. And then I pulled out the phone and I said, for example, here's one of our stories. And I would hand it to the VC. And there were so many times where we were just sitting there in silence for five minutes while they were finishing that entire five minute story. And so two things, one, tell a great story and a, use a personal narrative when you can, and two, have a killer demo. These two things will make your pitch go so much better. Such tactical advice. Please do that. I'm going to now try testing and adding demos because you're right. Our product speaks for itself. One of the things that you've also commented on in the past is being critical of VC culture, the idea that 
oh, every single successful startup has to go raise money from Sand Hill Road VCs. And what perspective would you share with founders about that? I think the most important thing is to keep a really clear vision of what you're trying to build. What's your goal? You know, what's the product that you're trying to build? What is the world that that you are trying to create? And don't let yourself get wrapped up in all of the headlines about who's raising at, you know, hundreds of millions at billion, multi-billion dollar valuations. It's almost like a sickness, you know, like we are, we're reading all these headlines and as founders, that is the biggest kind of social validation you can get today, becoming a unicorn and, and raising massive amounts of money. And I have seen so many founders get so caught up in that, that they just keep raising more and more money. And the thing is, is that works for a while. If you raise a big round, you know, going back to this thing of metrics, you can basically buy your metrics by overspending on a bunch of stuff and making things kind of seem like they're going up and to the right. It's not fraudulent, but they're not based on real traction. They're based on the fact that you're overspending on a bunch of stuff. And then you use that to go raise another bigger round. And then you use that to go raise another bigger round. But all you're actually doing is raising a bunch of money, throwing too much money at the problem and creating this house of cards, as opposed to staying heads down, doing the hard work of building a real product, getting real traction. And when you do that, you actually build a real business and you can go raise the money when you actually need it to grow. And I think ultimately that is the only way to build something real because the other path of fake it till you make it and raising huge amounts of money, it catches up with you in the end. And I know so many founders personally that have taken that route and you see them at the end of that 10 year journey, even if they cashed out, they are miserable <laughs> because they've been living a lie for that whole time. So they're great investors on Sand Hill Road. They're also great investors who are not on Sand Hill Road and like to invest in founders who are just focused. I really recommend taking that path and go seeking out investors who want to invest in you for the right reasons. So from what I've read, Hooked was founded on the premise that tech and data can help improve upon fiction and stories and help drive that. How does that work? Because, you know, when you talk about Hollywood, there was this like famous company called Relativity Media that was like, we're going to use data and algorithms to figure out how to make successful films. And it kind of failed. But then we also have like Netflix, which clearly is sometimes painting by numbers. And you see movies like Red Notice and you're like, wait, they just like took a bunch of films and mashed them together and created this new film. So how do you think about that debate of data versus creativity? It's a great question. And I think the examples you brought up are so relevant. So if you think about Netflix, you're right. So much of what they do now, not to knock what they've done, they've, they've put out amazing stuff, but sometimes it does feel like paint by numbers. And the problem, although they have pioneered the use of data in the industry, the problem with the data that they have available to them is that it is retrospective, which means what they can do is once a movie is or a TV show is on their platform. They have amazing data to see how engaging is this particular piece of content? 
what what's the profile of the audience that this is engaging for they can then go to their executives who are making decisions on which things to greenlight give them that data and come up with some sort of formula that's more than just do i like this script do i not to decide what to greenlight in the future the problem with that is that it is still looking at the past it so it's a very crude tool our approach is completely different what we do is we take stories in real time at every single line we get engagement data netflix tests at the end so they the script gets written they whoever the production company is green lights it it gets cast it gets produced millions of dollars have been spent it gets put on netflix and then netflix is able to see okay this show is interesting right? What we do, we have vertically integrated the entire process. We start with the first thousand words of a story. The writer submits that to our platform. We put it up, give it an audience of a few hundred or a few thousand readers, and then we can see how engaged is the audience with this story. If we're seeing a signal that says this audience is engaged, we can go back to the writer and say, okay, finish this, go write the entire season. And they write the entire season and we see, hey, the audience loves this entire, not just the concept, but the entire season. And then we can say, all right, let's go invest some money and produce this into a show or a movie. So that's kind of the core of what we do. How many of these amazing stories have been made into film or TV? Tell us more about the business model. We've gone through different kind of iterations, but it was freemium, which was you could get a certain number of stories for free. And then to access the entire catalog, you had to subscribe. Um, we've now kind of split that up. We have, we still have a subscription in the app, but a huge portion of our traffic actually comes off of our own app on other platforms. So we publish our stories daily on Snapchat um, and some other platforms as well, but Snapchat has, has been our biggest partner and completely for free. And so we have an ad supported model now for the stories and we get huge audiences, you know, through that model. As usual, obviously there's a trade-off between audience size and paywalls. The, the long-term growth opportunity for us and business model really is around taking the stories that um, perform well and producing them into uh, shows and movies. We're just at the very beginning. We've done our top 50 stories so far and produced them in, into shows, mobile shows, and they've performed very, very well. Um, some of them have individual pieces of IP have reached hundreds of millions of, of viewers, which has been incredible to see. Um, but it's really the very beginning. You know, we have a lot more that we want to do. Prerna, you hinted at this in one of your other answers, is that you've co-founded and started several of your companies with your partner, Barag. What's that been like? How did you two meet? How did you know that you wanted this person to be not just your life partner, but also your business partner? We met 17 years ago and we started our first company together six months after we met. <laughs> and I think for us, it's not just a business thing. It's sort of just how we are. We really complement each other very well. We like to spend all of our time together. I know that probably sounds just like ugh, <laughs> to a lot of people, but that's just how we are. We were into remote work way before, like way, way, way before it was cool. Fundraising was a major issue for us when we were fundraising, you know, most of our careers because um, 
VCs hated the idea of remote work until like basically about a year ago. And when we were doing our first startup, actually, Prague was, in addition to being a co-founder on the startup, also a professor at Georgia Tech of music technology. And that was actually what led to the technology we used for our second startup. And he would write grants, for example, uh, to, to fund his research. And I remember I would help him on his grants. We would talk together about the ideas and I would help edit the stuff he was writing and all of that. And so we are just, I think, natural collaborators. And we also have very complementary skill sets. And so it works really well for us. At the same time, obviously, it's hard. You know, doing a startup is, is always hard in a more typical relationship, one person might be a founder and the other person has a stable job, <laughs> you know, so you've got kind of that rock as, as a founder, you've got your rock, your, your partner who doesn't necessarily have to experience those same emotional ups and downs. For us, we go through them together, but we really try and I think kind of naturally do a pretty good job of being each other's rock. We can sense each other's state. If there's a morning where I wake up and I'm feeling down for whatever reason, he senses that immediately. And he's, he's the kind of optimist that day and vice versa. I can sense when he's for whatever reason, feeling like everything sucks <laughs> and, um, I kind of bolster him. And so we've just developed this balancing system that has helped us tremendously. We tend to not really argue, we debate. If there is a disagreement in how we should, you know, what strategy we should pursue or, you know, how we should proceed with something re related to the business, uh, we really try and not get into heated arguments, but just lay out the opinions and lay out the facts and uh, eventually come to a decision together. And that has really been effective for us. And, and I think it's a great way also to approach a relationship. What are some of the roles that he takes on in the company? And what are some of the roles that you take on? We have actually learned a little bit more about each other's roles over time. So it, we, I'm always the CEO and he's the CTO. So to break it down very clearly, he manages the engineering and I manage the business stuff, quote unquote. We bring different things to the table. We have learned from each other over time. I think great products come from two different perspectives. One is the human perspective, where you really understand the psychology of the, the person who will be using your product. And the other is the engineering perspective, where you understand how it's going to be built and understand how to do it efficiently. And we have over time just developed this ability to work together and come up with what, what we like to think of as great products um, by, by kind of marrying those, those two perspectives. You know, Hooked says it's a mobile app that makes reading addictive for teens. So how did you figure out who your target audience was for Hooked? And then second, how did you balance that from like making reading interesting, but also making sure it doesn't go to that flip side of being harmful to mental health or things like that? We took a, a pretty data-driven approach to the whole thing where we started and we put up some stories, we ran some Facebook ads and didn't target a specific demo. We just kind of put it up and s just saw what the Facebook algorithms found. And it turned out that it was teenagers ages 13 to 17 
primarily female. And then we used that to understand, okay, this is our audience. This is who we're building for. Let's go build for this audience. To your question about addictiveness, our premise has always been that reading fiction and engaging with stories is a much more fulfilling and nourishing activity for teens and really for anyone of any age to be doing on social media and on their phones. And in order to do that, in order to compete with social media for attention, we have to figure out how to make it more engaging and a little bit more quote unquote addictive. It's harder, you know, it's harder to read. You have to put some energy into it. And what we're trying to do is make it a little bit easier and a little bit more engaging and use some of the things that make social media more engaging to kind of trick people almost into reading a story, you know, a fictional story, as opposed to scrolling endlessly on their Instagram feed. At the same time, there have been some criticisms, you know, people feel that we're destroying the novel or dumbing down reading or whatever. And that's not at all our intention. I love reading novels and nothing would make me more sad than than thinking that I'm destroying the novel, but we view it as this introduction, you know, let's, let's help young people understand and remember that reading is, is really fun. It's something that they can enjoy doing. And then hopefully they go pick up a novel afterwards. Yeah. I love reading novels too. I just do not understand when people are like, I only read nonfiction. I'm like, why are you hurting yourself? Because <laughs> some like nonfiction books, some of them are, could have just been an article. Exactly. We can all be real about that. Oh my gosh. I could not agree more. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the last great read you had? There's this great um, translation of the Mahabharata, which is one of the great uh, Indian epics. And I'm I'm not, you know, religious and and not trying to like say whatever, because it is a religious text, but it's not about the religion. It's just this really amazing fantasy story that, that came out of Indian culture and Indian mythology. And it's really long and I didn't have that much time. Like, I think I read it like 10 minutes at a time at night or something. So it took me like a year, but, um, it was really, really cool and really awesome. I love that recommendation. Many people don't realize how the Hindu epics map to the Greek epics. So the Mahabharata, you can think of it like the Hindu version of the Iliad and the Ramayana. You can think of it as a Hindu mythological version of the Odyssey. And the parallels are just astounding. And I've always been obsessed with those stories because there are so many beautiful lessons in there. Yeah, Both of those worlds teach you that life is not black or white. Exactly. It's just this whole thing of good and evil. What's the right course of action uh, in murky situations? It's amazing that they were thinking and talking about these things so long ago. You've mentioned in the past that you felt different in high school and that, you know, eventually you realize that your differences could be your strengths. Even the way you were framing how you think about fundraising, you're like, yep, it's harder for me, but that means I'm more skilled and I'm a better founder. You know, that does take some work to change that mindset. So how did you do that? It's a lifelong journey, but it it really happened through my experiences in high school. I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma in the 80s and 90s. It was a really difficult place to grow up as the oldest child of immigrants from India. You know, when I was in grade school, I was, I faced a lot of racism. I felt pretty isolated. 
it, it was emotionally difficult for sure. I was very shy as a result of that. Uh, and then, you know, when I started to go through puberty, a, a different part of being awoke, and I realized that it was important to me to be part of the community. I wanted to be a leader. I wanted to be popular. You know, these things were important to me. I wanted to have an impact. So I started to change who I was and denying my background and my roots. And uh, I started to like the classic thing of, I remember, I, I mean, I started by highlighting my hair and eventually got like, you know, looking like it was very light brown, you know, almost blonde and just little things like that. I remember my mom, you know, I feel so bad in retrospect, but I, I stopped eating her food because, you know, I felt like whatever, it smelled bad. And like people would come over and always comment about the smell of the spices. And so just really went through this period of, of denying my culture and my background, then eventually sort of hit my dark night of the soul, you know, to take a term from storytelling and had an awakening and just sort of had this moment where I had to really dig deep and ask myself, who am I? What do I want to achieve in my life? And I realized in that moment that it would only happen through me embracing who I am and finding a way to get others to respect me and to want to work with me because of who I am, not despite of who I am. I started to embrace myself and my culture. And um, by the end of high school, I think I sort of figured things out. And that helped give me a lot of grit, I think, as, as a founder and, and just changed my perspective. Thanks so much for sharing that. Is there a song that's been energizing you? And since you are a singer and an artist, would you mind singing a line or a verse that inspires you? Sure. Um, <laughs> let me see. Um, okay. It's just a melody, um, and it's a melody that I transposed from an Indian guzzle. Um, guzzle is one of the kind of light classical Indian um, art forms that comes out of North India. I should say South Asia because it's also from Pakistan as well as India. And it, it was a beautiful guzzle, and I kind of transposed it into a sort of Western melody. So I can just... La, 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 la. La 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 That was so good. That was so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and I one thing I will say is that I love music that just sort of hits, you know, deep and uh, just makes you remember kind of what's important in life. So. Brenda Gupta is the founder and CEO of Hooked. That's it for the show this week. On next week's show, I'm talking to Ankur Jain, founder and CEO of Kairos, a startup studio building companies that aim to solve some of the biggest problems in society from healthcare to housing costs. If you like this show, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this, and share it with someone who you think would love to hear Berna's story. Natalia Alcantara produced this series. Golda Arthur is our showrunner, and Josh Deng is our sound engineer. Sahil Ansari composed our theme music, and Mina Shoeb designed our art. 
Thanks for listening.